Hey, uh, just before I get started tonight, uh, earlier today was just praying about this evening. And, and just for whatever reason, one of the things that was impressed upon me uh, in prayer was just sort of a, a little reiteration of one of the things that was mentioned at the fall retreat, if you were on that. Um, but just the idea that if you are in a stage of maybe trying to hear from God, uh, maybe trying to seek some direction for your future, and you're asking God, which way do I go? If you're not hearing God, I would want to ask you tonight, where's your heart? Is your heart in a place where you're actually willing to receive and to follow whatever God's answer might be? So I don't know if you know, that kind of speaks to anyone here tonight. I know it actually has been something that's speaking to me. Sometimes I try to hear God on certain things and I seek him for certain things and, and I realize perhaps the reason I don't actually feel like I hear more is because I'm actually not really willing to act on what he might say. So I just want just to share that. <clears throat> and now we're going to look at uh, our passage. So tonight is the last night that we are in the Old Testament. Uh, so for the last uh, about 14, 15 weeks, actually, we've been doing a series called Best Story Ever. It's the Bible at 30,000 feet. We're looking at 15 stories from the Old Testament, about that many in the New Testament as well, in order to see the big picture. What is the story of Scripture all about? And uh, if you go to the next slide, whoever's running slides, who is running slides? Luke, is that you? I can't tell. Oh, great. Thanks, Luke. <laughs> um, you might remember this from a couple weeks ago when we had John Lewis teaching. This is a diagram that John had on the handout, and he uh, has developed this. And you can kind of see where we've been. You know, this, he, he's called this the ups and downs of God's kingdom story. It's pretty accurate. Uh, because if you uh, follow through the story of the Old Testament, there's a lot of ups and downs. So just uh, by, by way of review, let me, just, let me just kind of point out what we've got here. So the story begins with creation. We looked at creation. And then the great precipitous fall is the fall, when humanity falls away from God through sin and rebellion. And then... Uh, God begins to intervene, and he develops, or maybe the better word is unveils, what his rescue plan is. How is he going to salvage redemption out of the material that he's been given to work with? It's been said only God can make a masterpiece out of the materials, us, <laughs> that he's given to work with, and yet he can. And so he calls a man named Abraham, and Abraham's family is going to be a family that God's going to use to bless everybody, to bless all the nations. That family gets taken down into Egypt where they're enslaved for about 400 years. God sends a man named Moses to be their rescuer and their deliverer. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. The people are brought to Mount Sinai in the wilderness. God adopts them as his people, so to speak. And he gives them the Ten Commandments, the law, as a way to show them their need for a savior. Because as you can see, and I'm not going to go over everything here, but all the ups and downs are essentially Abraham's family, the people of Israel, sinning and rebelling and screwing up time and time and time and time again. So we went through the period of the judges, where that's just the, the cycle on repeat for 300 years. And then we got to when God uh, allows a king to be given to the nation of Israel. And first you have uh, King Saul, he's a picture of man's kind of king, and then you have King David. And King David is told that one day there's going to be a descendant from his line 
who will be a, 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 a lasting, everlasting king, and he's going to be the one who will set things right. But then, unfortunately, the kingship begins to have problems. And if you follow the story for about 500, 400 years after King David, the kings, you know, there's some good eggs in there, but most of them, by and large, lead the nation astray. That leads the people to be led into exile. And about the year 586 and before the Babylonians come in, the Israelites are taken away into captivity in Babylon, and for 70 years, they remain there. But last week, as, as you might remember, we looked at the, kind of the theme of Israel's revival. They came back from exile. And if you look at books like Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, these are all post-exilic books, you might say, that talk about what happens afterward. What happens afterward when they are brought back to the land and the exile is ended. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. That's, you know, that's where we've been. If you were reading the Old Testament for the very first time, if you knew nothing about the Bible, nothing about Christianity, uh, you know, let's say that you get to the very end. You know, the book of Malachi is the last book chronologically. Uh, he's the last prophet to receive the word of the Lord at the end of the Old Testament period. Let's say, you know, you're reading this for the first time, you get to Malachi. What would your response be? I think, I would suggest to you, your response would probably be something like shock and unbelief. Or disbelief, maybe. Shock and disbelief. Well, why? Well, it's because the Old Testament just ends. Like, you know, um, if you ever watched like a, a really great TV show, how does Netflix get you just binge-watching things? Well, every episode's a cliffhanger, so you just have to watch the next one, you know. And, and that's kind of like how the Old Testament ends. It's a total cliffhanger. Well, you know, so why is it a cliffhanger? Well, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, the books we looked at last time, you know, books like Ezra, books like Nehemiah. So, you know, Israel's gotten back from the exile, and you'd kind of think, oh, well, you know, everything's great. Like, the nation's been revived, right? Well, not so fast. In the book of Ezra, you know, what do they do? They rebuild the temple. Uh, in the book of Nehemiah, what do they do? They rebuild the city. Uh, you think, well, okay, great. Everything should be right and, and, and you know, right as it ought to be. Right? Wrong. <laughs> you know, why, why, did, why in the first place did Adam and Eve lose the garden? They lost the garden because of sin and rebellion. Why did Israel make the golden calf? They made the golden calf because of sin and rebellion. You know, why did, why did Israel split in two? Why did the, the nation get taken into exile? Every single time, the answer is the same. The heart of Israel's problem, and actually the heart of humanity's problem, is always the heart. It's always the heart. And the heart of, of Israel and, and kind of the way that we are naturally wired is to be self-seeking, to be self-centered, and to be curved in on ourselves. And the result of that is sin. So, so what does it mean when you get to the very end of the books of Ezra, you know, books of Nehemiah? You know, these are some of the last books in the Old Testament. And, and what's the very last thing you read when you get to the end of those books? Well, okay, book of Ezra, let's look at that. The people are back, the temple's been built, but how does the book end? It ends with Ezra, and he's weeping. Now, why is Ezra weeping? He's weeping because, yet again, the people have broken God's law. And if you go and read the last couple chapters, this is big, dramatic thing. <laughs> okay, uh, the book of Ezra. What about the book of Nehemiah? It's kind of like the sequel. Well, you know, so the wall's been rebuilt, the city's been restored, but the book ends with Nehemiah fuming over the people not doing what God's told them to do. So if you're reading the Old Testament for the first time, you know, this doesn't really seem like an end. It doesn't really seem like a resolution because nothing has changed. The heart of the people is exactly what it's been all throughout the entire story. 
So the reason that it's a cliffhanger is that the fundamental problem, like the problem of sin, hasn't been solved. Which means that, you know, we're just set up to repeat again and again the same destructive cycle that's dominated the whole Old Testament. This is why there's a, there's a guy, a famous Bible student, uh, his name is uh, Warren Wearsby, he's written some books, and I, I, he made a comment that really helped me. He said, you know, if you want to summarize the whole Old Testament in one verse, it would be Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 says, this is the book, the Old Testament's kind of a book, right? This is the book of the generations of Adam. And what do you see in every single story of the Old Testament? It ends in failure, it ends in sin, it ends in death. So the key verse for the whole Old Testament is, this is the book of the generations of Adam and all that comes from his line. But then he makes the comment that the key verse for the New Testament is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which says the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. And so it's not by accident that the very last word of the Old Testament, this is in the book of Malachi, do you know what it is? Anyone know what the last word of the Old Testament is without looking? It's the word curse. It's the word curse. Let me just, I'm going to throw this up on the screen. This is the last two verses of the last book. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So that's the Old Testament. But then it's no accident that when you get to the very end of the New Testament, look at what it says. This is from the very last chapter of the whole Bible. Revelation 22, and there shall be no more curse. So the Old Testament is a cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger. It just ends. <laughs> there's no resolution. There's no solution. And there's one very, very important character who's missing. Very conspicuously missing. And that character is what we're going to look at tonight. And it's a character called the Messiah. The last chapter of our Old Testament overview this evening is a chapter that's all about the Messiah. Um, Messiah, what does that mean? Well, um, recently, if you are into pop cultural sorts of things, uh, perhaps you, yes you, uh, have been watching the, the, the new you know, Lord of the Rings show, Rings of Power, made by Amazon. Um, I didn't think it was very good. I thought it was so-so. Please don't throw tomatoes at me. If you are a big fan of this show, then, you know, you do you, as they say. Um, watch the show. Just raise a hand. Okay. Okay. You guys watch the whole show? I won't give any spoilers tonight, but, you know, it's pretty tempting. Yeah, you know, so uh, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, uh, the books, the books are where it's at. If you haven't read the books, then you don't even know what you're missing out on. Go read the books. Uh, anyway, in the books, in the books, in, in the trilogy, you know, the original trilogy, uh, there's, there's a, a little part where Bilbo, you know, Bilbo Baggins, he's kind of the, the, the OG hobbit, you know. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Who cares about all those other guys? There's a, there's a little part where uh, he, he, he writes a poem about his friend Aragorn. And Aragorn is, is the, the, the lost heir to one of the great kingdoms of men. 
And um, <clears throat> we don't know this at first, but kind of as you read the story, you find out that he's sort of the, the hidden heir, the secret king, uh, who's been you know, waiting, his, his, his line has been waiting to reclaim the throne after hundreds of years of it being vacated. And Bilbo's little poem about, about Aragorn, the, the king, goes like this. All that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither, deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. Now, uh, if there's any Tolkien nerds in the audience, anyone know which of the three books that's from? Fellowship, Two Towers, Return of the King? Anyone know? Yeah. Oh. It's from Fellowship. Man, how did you know that? I didn't know that. I don't. Oh, okay. okay. See, there's a man who's reading the books. Way to go. Way to go. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's from the very first book. And so, like, he's not king yet. And so this little poem, it almost has, if you're a reader of the book, it's kind of like a little foreshadowing. It's a shadow. It's, it's a, uh, uh, you know, like, what is it? Uh, a shadow, uh, like a hint, a foretelling of what will happen later on in the story. And in the Old Testament, if you're a careful reader of that, well, then you're going to notice something very similar. Because throughout the Old Testament, what do you find? You find scattered here and there. There's hints, there's shadows, there's foretellings, there's prophecies of a promised king who, like Aragorn, will one day take the throne. And in the Bible, those hints, those prophecies, those foretellings are about a figure who's called the Messiah. So remember, by the way, the very first one. The very first, I think, maybe not the very first time, maybe the second time we, we were in this series, we looked at the very first one in the whole Bible, and it's Genesis 3.15. And Genesis 3.15 says, this is God talking, he's talking to, to Satan, who's just tempted Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So what's this saying? It's saying that, well, humanity has fallen. What's going to happen now? What's God going to do about it? And he says there's going to come someone from the line of the woman, a human being, who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. Translation, he's going to reverse the curse. He's going to deal with sin. He's going to set everything to right. And this is the very, like, you know, probably what, the second page of the Bible. So from the very beginning, there's an expectation the king, the Messiah, is coming. And the whole rest of the Old Testament you can summarize through this picture. <laughs> this picture. I probably should have given some slides. Uh, not that picture. Um, although that, you know, look at that great picture. That's that picture. This, you might remember this from a couple weeks ago, it's a funnel, right? And so what's a funnel? It's something that has a big opening and a small um, 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 exit way, other opening? Hole. There you go. Thank you, Cameron. The whole Old Testament is basically a gigantic funnel. It starts out saying, okay, there's going to be a human being. Well, who's it going to be? Well, that's why, like, by the time you're at the end of the very first book, the book of Genesis, it's zoomed in on one tiny little family. What the Bible's telling you is the Messiah is going to be a son of Adam, a son of Noah, a son of Abraham, a son of Isaac, a son of Jacob, a son of not just any of Jacob's 12 sons, but a son of Judah. He's going to be a son of David. He's not going to be just a son of any of David's sons, but he's going to come from the line of Solomon. So like a funnel, it's narrowing its focus to help us discover who the Messiah is going to be. 
And so by the end of the Old Testament, the Messiah hasn't come. You know, this is the other reason why it's a cliffhanger. There's been all this expectation that this guy's going to come, he's going to come, he's going to come, he's going to come. By the end of the book, he hasn't come. <laughs> but, what, well, but what has happened by the time you get to the end is if you've read through the Old Testament, you now can know how to know who the Messiah is going to be when he arrives. So uh, actually now, Luke, you can go to the, uh, the other picture. Um, <laughs> anyone know what this is? Uh, I mean, I guess you could say it's a name tag. I, yeah, I'd also like to think of it maybe as like an ID card. Uh, you know, kind of identifies who you are um, with that very descriptive looking picture there. And an ID card, you know, an ID card is kind of what singles a person out as who they are. And what the Old Testament basically gives you is it gives you an ID card for the Messiah. Now, by the way, what's really neat about this is that all of these things, by the way, happened, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus came. Uh, you know, all these prophecies were given hundreds of years before Jesus came. And so, uh, you know, some of us might have kind of scratched our heads and wondered, you know, how do I know that Christianity is true? What kind of proof, what kind of evidence is there for that? Well, one, I don't know if you call it a proof, but one interesting demonstration that I think points to the truth of the scriptures and of the Old Testament is that there are many things that, like, even archaeological evidence tells us, you know, we've got, you know, the book of Isaiah, <clears throat> and we know that it was, you know, that copy of it came from hundreds of years before Jesus, and it contains prophecies that Jesus perfectly fulfilled in ways that were completely outside of his ability. Let me give you an example. So, um, if you were to go to the book of Micah, in fact, if someone could maybe flip to the book of Micah, I'd love just to have someone read Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Whoever gets there first, just go for it. <laughs> Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Thank you. So there's a prophecy, and again, this is given hundreds of years before Jesus is born, and it's saying that the ruler of Israel, the Messiah, is going to come out of Bethlehem. And it's true. When Jesus came, he was born in Bethlehem. Now, of course, you can't, you know, I was born in Oakland, California. Um, apparently, I, you know, some people tell me that Oakland is not, you know, the kind of place where one would want to be born. I've never had any uh, misgivings about that. But, uh, you know, even if I had, I, I, you know, it's not like I could have controlled where I was born. Um, you know, good luck with that. In the same way, you know, Jesus couldn't have controlled where he was born either if he was just a normal human. And yet, um, this is an example of one of the many prophecies about how Jesus came that were beyond his control that you see um, lining up with the, the record of history. And there's a no, number of other ones as well that you could add to the ID card for the Messiah. So the first thing we know from the Old Testament, as an example, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, another one we already talked about is he's going to be a descendant of Abraham. So this is uh, Genesis chapter 12. Or here's a really neat one. We know not just where the Messiah is going to come from, but the Old Testament is even specific on when he's going to arrive. So we're not going to have time to look at this, but if you go to the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, it's a prophecy that says that the Messiah is going to arrive sometime before the destruction of the second temple. And we have a date for that. That happened in AD 70. So anyone who came along after AD 70 claiming to be the Messiah cannot be the Messiah. It goes against the, the writ of scripture 
because there's a very specific prediction about when the Messiah is going to come on the scene. And sure enough, Jesus did. Now tonight, there's some passages on the handout. And in small groups, I'm going to encourage you just as a group, look up those passages and add to the little ID card of who we are learning the Messiah is going to be, what he's going to look like. We're not going to look at all of them, but you can do that in groups. What I do want to point out is the passage that's on your handout. And the passage that's on your handout is Isaiah 53. And I'll let you guys read this more thoroughly in small groups, but I do just want to read two verses from that chapter. And it's verses, well, a little more than two. (laughs) Um, Let me start from verse two. This is a messianic prophecy. It says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reason that we're concluding with this passage tonight is that this is probably the most surprising of all of the messianic prophecies of Jesus. You know, it's one thing to know that he's going to come as a king. It's one thing to know maybe where he's going to be born, when he's going to be born, how he's going to be born. But as you just heard, this passage doesn't just predict those details. It predicts actually what he's going to do. And what he's going to do is utterly unlike what any other king in human history would ever choose to do. Because what Isaiah prophesies is that this king is going to come to lay down his life. It is going to lay down his life not just for good people, not just for great people, not just for important people, but he's going to lay down his life for those who have sinned against him and for those who are responsible for his own death. When Jesus died on the cross, that was a judgment. You know, God was judging Jesus for our sin in our place. And the reason that he's the Messiah is not because you know, he came with some sort of political solution. You know, there was a big political problem in that day, and it was the Romans who were ruling over the, Israel, the Israelites and were, were basically oppressing them. And they thought their problem was that. Jesus came along, and he did the very opposite of what they wanted him to do. He died. You know, the next time you read through one of the four Gospels, and if you just come from reading the whole Old Testament, you know, it's, just, it's astonishing. You get to the book of Matthew, the very first line, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And you read that and you think, he's here! <laughs> Abraham, David, you know, all, it's just all the alarm bells are going off. He's here! You read through the accounts of what he came to do. You read the accounts of the Sermon on the Mount. You read the accounts of, of how he did miracles. He did the miracles the Messiah was predicted to do. He, you know, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. You know, he said the things that the Messiah uh, you know, spoken the way that the Messiah would have spoken. You know, all these ways in which he's ticking off all the boxes of messianic prophecy. And then you get to the end of the book, and he dies. <laughs> he dies. 
You know, after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years of expectation, he shows up and he gets killed. I mean, I think we miss, if you know the story well, (laughs) you miss how utterly shocking that is. And it is shocking, and it's supposed to be shocking, because it's the Bible's way of saying the kind of Messiah that God sent into the world was utterly unlike any other power, ruler, or authority that the world has ever seen. I'm going to let you guys go to small groups and look at this more. Um, you know, like you probably know, these, these little talks are really just meant to be more overviews to kind of set you up to study this. But I do want to say one thing um, just before we do that. And that's just to say, to know a suffering Messiah, not just a, a reigning or a conquering Messiah, but to know a Messiah who came not just to bring judgment, but to bear judgment, to suffer, to die, is just incredibly, incredibly powerful personally. You know, it says about Jesus earlier in the book of Isaiah, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And if you look at verse 2, I believe it is in this passage, why, why won't he bruise a, a, a bruised reed? It's because he was a bruised reed. <laughs> he grew up like a tender shoot. He was a bruised reed. And so Jesus is the only king who knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to be lost. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to suffer. And no one will ever, no one can ever love you like that Messiah will. So I'm going to turn it over to groups tonight uh, just so you guys can spend some time uh, looking at this amazing chapter um, that gives you the final piece of the puzzle of the ID card of who the Messiah is going to be. And in a couple of weeks, uh, not next week, because we've got the small group night, and then actually the week after that, um, Hannah's going to share a little bit about her time in India. But the week after that, we're going to begin looking at the New Testament in order to see how it is that the Messiah actually comes, what he did, what he said, what it means.